Action Park Media. All right, everybody. Welcome uh, to Dom's Den. Um, well, we decided to uh, to go with Dom's Den because a lot of people were misspelling Dominic, apparently. So um, going forward, it's going to be Dom's Den. Um, I want to, before I introduce uh, my next guest, uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, Craig's mom's grant and uh, condolences to his family. Uh thinking about you guys uh mom's tremendous poet actor i know him for a long time bronx native uh 52 years 52 years too young and um just want to send out my condolences to his family uh during this uh tough time wishing them uh strength all right today's guest is a guy that's dedicated his life to helping others, a first responder, a New York City firefighter, and 9-11 survivor. He wouldn't want me to call him that because uh, that's just the way John is. Uh, to me, he's a real-life hero. Uh, he's also been fortunate enough to make a rear pivot in the, the world of Hollywood, serving both as an actor and a coordinator in the film The King of Staten Island. That's where I know him. Uh, it's my pleasure, John Sorrentino. How you doing, buddy? Good, Dominic. Thank you for the kind words, and uh, sorry for the loss of your friend. Ah, thank you, thank you. Uh, it's it's crazy times, man. You, you know, it's, I I still don't know what happened. Um, but uh, needless to say, fifty two is too young, and I I, I I I and I know you are very uh familiar with uh, hardships and people. Dying very young, uh, you went through a lot, and um, well, let's. We both know each other. Uh, working on the King of Staten Island, we hit it off right away. I was, uh, you showed me the ropes. Uh, you were always there. You always answered everybody's questions. Your patience, um, the way you conducted yourself, um, it it was just something that always stood out to me and. I love talking to you about your days as a cop, your days as a firefighter, the the whole nine eleven experience, your relationship with Pete Davidson's father, and that's how that's what brought you to the film. So, why don't you take it from there? Well, uh, you want to start at the beginning, with, as far as Pete goes in the movie. He uh, sent out a text to me and a few other guys who knew his father back in uh, February of twenty nineteen. He said, hey, I'm making a movie with Judd Apatow and he wants to meet some of my father's friends. Finally, he wants to talk about the fire department. So I rounded up a few old timers. Uh, we went to a diner in Brooklyn. I think there was five of us retired firefighters and there was Pete, Judd Apatow, Barry Mendel, the producer. Bill Burr was there. Dave Cyrus, who was the other writer. Mm -hmm. Had a nice breakfast. And it couldn't have been a better group of people because... Uh, you know, we're regular guys. We're not, you know, we're not starstruck. We're just talking, you know, just shooting the shit. And uh, we all got along great. Uh, Judd got what he wanted to get out of us. You know, we were swapping stories. Our firehouse was actually two blocks from his diner. So after we had breakfast, we took them over to our firehouse, downtown Brooklyn. 
uh, engine 205 and ladder 118. We gave them a tour of the firehouse. They met the guys who were working. Uh, we have a 9-11 memorial there. I do. I remember seeing it. We went there. Uh, we swapped some stories. And, uh, you know, the whole thing was maybe about a four or five hour day. And that was the end of it, I thought. And then over the course of the next couple of weeks, I kept getting phone calls from Barry Mandel, the producer. And they were just asking basic questions about the fire department. You know, what kind of tours do you guys work? You know, uh, what's the difference between a ladder and an engine? You know, basic stuff, but they just, they didn't know any of it. So I'm constantly, you know, phone calls, emails going on for a couple of weeks. So finally he calls me one day. He goes, listen, he goes, Judd wants to know if you'd like to be a consultant on this movie. He goes, we're really, you know, we're bothering you so much. We might as well pay you for it. So I was like... <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, hell yeah, you know, I would have did it for free. I said, but yeah, put me on the payroll. So uh, yeah. yeah, sure. So I became a consultant, and uh, it turns out I'm a pretty good writer. You know, you know, I'm, I'm nothing special, but what they needed from me, like they would ask me, hey, could you write a scene if you were going to fight a fire? What would it look like? What would guys do? Or, or if you're sitting around the firehouse, if you're training, whatever you're doing. I'm good at writing it down and explaining it so someone who knows nothing about it will understand it. So yes. all the scenes that we shot in the movie, you know, there were several they didn't even use. I kind of, I wrote them as a baseline that they could use and then they took it from there and, you know, tightened it all up and did whatever. Well, I, I want to clarify something. There, there's a lot, there's a lot of firemen uh, uh, firehouse stuff that was in the film that didn't make it uh, on the screen just because of the time constraints and um, and was used in the in, in 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 the montage, but that's all. I want the, everybody to know that that was all John. I re I remember shooting and they would you know Dave or or some of the other writers and Judd they would come up to you you know. We'll, what what's a what's a prank here? What what's a joke? What you know? What would you talk about in the kit? And right off the top of it, you know, maybe you should do this. Maybe you should do that. And um, and we tried everything. You know, to judge credit, he, he, we 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 literally tried everything. Multiple takes of all different scenarios and. The first thing Judd said to us when we had that, when we went for breakfast, he asked us, he said, you know, what TV show or movie do you guys think portrayed the fire department most realistically? And honestly, I said, rescue me. The, the, the show that was on FX with oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Terry. I said, because Terry Quinn, who was another consultant on the movie. Yes, the, Terry. He was the consultant for rescue me. And a lot of that show was based on you know, his life as a firefighter in New York City. So I said, look, what I liked about Rescue Me is that they got the firehouse right. You know, the way we talk to each other, the way we break balls, how we act, you know. And, um, you know, when you see TV shows, movies with about fire, and of course, it's going to be over the top and, you know, fire shooting out every window and heroics. I mean, that's not real life. Hey, firemen with makeup on. Come on. Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, he, he goes, I want the, all these fire scenes. He said, he goes, I want them to be as realistic as possible. So when we were shooting in the firehouse, it was nice that, you know, every little thing he would ask and any advice I gave him, he took. I mean, the, the, like even the, the smallest thing, there was a scene that didn't make it into the movie where the, an actor was portraying Pete's father in the movie. It was like a flashback to sometime in the 1990s. Paul Verzi. Yeah. He, um, uh, I think he rescued a, a kid in a fire and he was being interviewed on the news and they, as they right before they started filming it, 
he's wearing his gear and he's, and he's, you know, he's got this radio, you know, the harness and the radio. And I just noticed that the radio he was wearing was a, like a brand new radio that we use today. Back in the 1990s, it's not the radios we were using. So I'm like a, you know, I'm a nitpicking maniac. So I said, wait a minute. I said, that's the, that radio doesn't look right. It doesn't look like it's from the 1990s. So I had him button up his coat all the way to hide the radio. And Judd was like, all right, yeah, that's good that you caught that. So everything we did, he, he, you know, he listened to everything we had to say. And plus we had Mario, Raphael, Giselle, you know, uh, they were in the movie. They played firefighters and they're all active New York City. They did a great job. So, all those guys, big shout out to those guys. They did a great job. We all chipped in, you know, we were all saying, hey, you know, this is this. Yeah, this is exactly how we would do it. This is what we would say, you know, plus Steve Buscemi. He was a firefighter for four years back in the 80s. So you can't get more authentic than that. You know, and then when we throw you guys in the mix, I mean, the first time I saw you was um, when uh, the rehearsal. No, well, the first time I, that's the first time I met you, but the first time I saw you was that audition. What happened was I was consulting. You know, uh, I, uh, they started shooting in June, but they hired me, I think, back in February or March. So I'm going to meetings and you know doing all this Hollywood stuff. No idea what I'm doing. I'm not in this world at all. You know, you guys speak a different language with all your check the gates and, you know, and <laughs> I, I know nothing about what's going on, but everyone was ridiculously nice to me. You know, I didn't feel like an outsider. So when they were, when it got time for them, they were going to cast fire and Barry Mendel calls me up. He goes, Hey, what does a typical firehouse look like? You know, we want to hire we want it to look like a real firehouse, you know, white guys, black guys, girls, fat, skinny, tall, short. So I sent them a bunch of pictures of different firehouses. You know, we're a mix. And uh, I said, I said, hey, Barry, I said, as long as you're casting for my for firemen, is there any chance I can audition for a role? I said, you know, I don't know how to act. I've never done it. I said, but what the hell? I wanted to take a shot. So he goes, yeah, pro no problem. You want to audition? Go ahead. So he sent me the it's like a four-page script you had to memorize. You probably had to do the same. You know, I don't even know if you would, how you auditioned. But anyway, I, I, uh, I went for an audition with the casting director. I did pretty good. I did it once. He goes, you know, you want to change it up, do it again, say it like you would say it, which I loved because there were several words in this script that I've never heard before. I was like, who talks like this? <laughs> the second time, and I, I guess I did it good enough because she called me back the next day. She goes, hey, Judge saw your tape. He liked it. Can you come back? And right. So I think it was the next day. I think it was a Friday when I went back to the auditions at the, their their uh, headquarters on Forty Second Street. There was hundreds of people in this big room. I guess they were they were auditioning for a lot of parts. You know, you were sitting there. You were sitting across from me, but a, a little way. And I looked at you. I said, "Holy shit, that's Dominic Lombardozzi." And I'm like, you know, I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? But I looked. <laughs> Dominic is fine. And Hank is there. Hank and uh, I think Mike a Action Action Bronson was there too, but I, 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 which is a funny story. Go ahead. I looked at Hank and I was like, he's going to be a fireman. And I think Mike Vecchione was there, and I looked at him too. Yeah. They're going to hire. He's going to be a cop or a fireman, one or the other. And sure enough, all those guys got hired. So yeah, I went into the audition room. I never told Pete. I never said anything to anyone that I was auditioning. I didn't want any favors, you know, because if I sucked, I didn't want to put anybody on the spot. So I went in and I, I walk in the room and Pete turns around. And he goes, you know, what the hell are you doing here? And I was like, I'm auditioning for a party. He goes, I had no idea. So I do the scene with Pete and um, he kind of is ruining it for me because he laughing. You know, not that I'm hilariously funny, but he's going back to me and him. 
doing this little scene and, he, and he's going, I'm so sorry. I'm blowing this. You're doing great. You know, he's not saying his lines. He goes, it's all me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So we get through the scene and uh, judge says, listen, he goes, John, you're fine. And he goes, do it again. He goes, just do it like you would do it. He goes, if you want to add stuff, go ahead, knock yourself out, you know, not realizing, but I learned later on, like you said before, Judd loves actors who can improvise and, you know, uh, you know, he likes to catch that magic moment that's maybe not written on the page. And so uh, we did the scene again and I just went off on a tangent. I mean, I, I, I was telling Feynman stories and the back and forth. And then I, I came back to the, what the original script, how it ended. And, you know, I was basically just being myself. And that was the end. Of, you know, thank you very much. Thought nothing of it. You know, I said, oh, I got my, I had my moment in the sun. I got to audition for a movie. How cool is that? A week later, Pete calls me up. He goes, hey, congratulations. He goes, you're hired. You're going to be a fireman in a movie. And I'm like, holy crap, you got to be kidding me. It was great. <laughs> it, was, it was great having you there, man. It was so helpful. Uh, I remember that one time you helped me out. I was like, you know, I think I think we were shooting the scene. I it was I actually had mentioned this with uh, with uh, Bill. Exactly what you going to say. The uh, I was like, you know, this might be the only time that this camera is here because we were fighting the daylight. You know, and uh, I said, what can I do? You know, and I was like, you know, these guys are superstitious. What, what's the deal with these guys? You know, and I, uh, I don't know. Do something with your gum. I'm like, okay. Okay. And <laughs> what, I, I think that was one take. Yes, it was. That was one take. And thank thank the Lord that the, the camera was in the right spot you know, and they picked it up. And I... Agree a hundred percent because I, I saw your 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 interview with Bill and he he brought it up and I even said to you when you originally said Bill was going to be on your show I said I even mentioned to you I think I texted you I said uh, I said you know talk about the thing with the gum I said because Bill always said that to me he goes that was the coolest thing he saw in the movie and he brought that up to you and he was right what he said he goes it legitimized this it was just you know that's something that no one's going to put in a script hey Dominic exits the rig and sticks the gum on his on his helmet and. Like I said, we discussed it while we're sitting in the rig between takes and, you know, boom. And then all of a sudden you got a rig and you do that. And it really- we had a great time, though, didn't we? Yeah. I, listen, I had the time of my life. I'm a- it was. Yeah. We had a really good time. Did you guys have to do any uh, fireman training at all to get ready yeah. for this? We, yeah. John, did you walk them through this? We, we uh, judge set it up and we went to Randall's Island. Uh, that's up near the Bronx. That's where the fire academy is. Simon, uh, we spent a day up at Randall's Island and we went through a, a training course where uh, there's one building where you, you uh, they, they set a room on fire and you got you got to hump hose upstairs and go in the room that's on fire and you got to operate the hose line and knock the fire down. And we did it in twos. Uh, I, I teamed up with Bill. I don't uh, who, who did were you with Mario? Yeah. Uh, yes. Actually, I was there with a guy who was—I uh, I don't remember his name—but he—he—he—he he, 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 he was. I think it was his last week there, and then he was going back to his firehouse. He was working at the fire academy. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we we uh, so you got you got to know what it feels like to, you know, be in a room with a lot of heat and fire, knock down a fire. We went into another room where we did a search. Right. We're black. We're completely black. See a thing, and you have to crawl around a room full of furniture. And there's little, they have little dolls as babies and uh, big dummies as people. And you have to try to find the people. You have to search in a room, and it's it's a very very realistic uh, way to practice because when you are on a fire 
and, and, and in the real deal, and, you, and you're in a room and you're searching for people, first of all, you're on your belly because it's so hot in the room that heat rises. The, the coolest place in the room is right on the floor. You can't stand up. It's too hot. And smoke also rises. So there's a little bit of visibility, a few inches maybe on the floor level. So that's why you're, when you are searching in a real fire, you're on your whopping around so that's a, that's and you can't so you can't see anything so that search thing it's it's, it's pretty good training drill so you, you know and uh we did a few other things so i think it gave you guys a taste of what it is you know look. oh absolutely yeah it, it wasn't easy i gotta tell you i mean if you're not used to it you know you're lugging up all you know you're wearing a lot of equipment it's heavy then you're working with the breathing apparatus and if you're not used to that you know that could shake you up a little bit <clears throat> on top of doing all this other stuff you know going in a room it's you know there's a fire i think we also did a a little fire blast in one of the rooms right we didn't do the rollover no. but it was something very similar to that um you had mentioned something very interesting you go well you know it's pretty empty in here and you go alongside the walls and that's how you figure things out you you just he goes but you, you have to understand when you go into somebody's apartment there's shit everywhere. There's couches, there's chairs where you don't think there would be and and you, you, all these different obstacles, right? You had mentioned to me one of the worst fires you were in was this plastic factory, right? It was, no, it was in um, 2004. That was the, actually the last job I was ever at because I got hurt at this, that job and I never went back to work after that. And uh, it was a, it was a, it was a big warehouse and the fire, the original fire was on the second floor and then there was fire on the first floor. And the worst place to be in a fire is the floor above the fire. That's the dangerous place. To be. So we, the fire started on the second floor. So there were guys in there knocking down that fire. And then another fire started on the first floor. And uh, we, you know, our company originally started knocking down that fire. We got that fire under control. Then we went up to the second floor. And like I just said a minute ago, when you're in a fire, you don't know where you're going. You go, now, now you're in a big warehouse and in downtown Brooklyn, you're not dealing with, you know, a hundred by a hundred square building with, you know, every floor is laid out the same way. These buildings are designed crazy. There's alcoves, there's staircases where there shouldn't be staircases. It's insane. And, you know, and uh, anyway, in this particular fire uh, up on the second floor crawling around, I almost fell down through the first floor because the floor was given away, I think, from the flyer. The, uh, the fire on, on the first floor my leg got stuck you know and uh for that 30 seconds where it took me to get my leg out of that little hole the the, the hose line moved because usually when you're in a, a fire you'll follow the hose line back and forth you know you get to the front of the line you're operating the line when you run out of air you got to turn out and go out and the next group comes in and when you're going your lead right you're following that hose line out yeah following the hose line in and just for those few seconds where i got stuck the hose line moved I'm in the middle of, I don't know where I am. And I'm like, you know, I'm feeling around with my hands on the floor. And I'm like, there's nothing here. And then all of a sudden the whole room lit up. I, John, I know a few, including yourself, a few firemen. And they, they all say it's the greatest job in the world. It is. It's, um, you have to go through it. You have to live it. You know, I'll tell you stories and people, oh, how could you do that? How could you run into a burning building? I said, but that's what we do. That's what we were trained to do. How do you, you know, how do you stand in front of a camera and act? I said, I find that amazing. How do these comedians go up on stage? It's what you do. And it's what yeah, but you got to be born brave. 
you can't teach somebody to be brave. That's true. But you got to be you got to be born to say, hey, you know what? I'm willing to go into that burning building. Teach me how to go in that burning building safely and how to do my job. But you can't teach somebody to have the balls. No, that's true. I think it's to do that something inside of you and i think people that's what i mean it's 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 just a different type of person and uh, you know what and you don't know if you can do it until you actually have to go through the fire academy and fight all the fake fires you want they fall off don't they you you told me there's a uh uh, what's the percentage of the people that go and and the people that quit like after two weeks right especially you know most people will make it through the fire academy uh but once they get to a firehouse, they, they catch a real fire, and uh, it's not for everybody. And there are people who who have quit very early on, realizing that I just can't do this job. It's it, you're right. You 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 can't teach this. It's either in you or it's not. But sometimes you know you might be the bravest guy in the neighborhood, then you become a fireman. You go into a fire, you might crap your pants. You know, it's it's you don't know. What right. to do. John, where are you, September? 10th are you working no you're not working right i got off work the morning of september 10th uh in the new york city fire department it's two shifts you uh it's a day shift and a night shift the day shift is 9 a.m to 6 p.m the night shift is 6 p.m to 9 a.m so that covers the full 24 hours and uh you know i'm not going to get into the details of the schedule but you know uh you'll work a couple of days day tours during the week and you'll be off and then you work a couple of night tours during the week. And, and uh, you're, you're, it's a very flexible schedule. You're able to swap with other guys. Like I'll be working uh, Monday and Tuesday during the day. You might be working Monday night and Tuesday night. I said, how about, you know, uh, I'll work for you Monday night. Now I'm working Monday, 9 a.m. till Tuesday, 9 a.m., 24 hours. You come in Tuesday morning, work for me. Now you're working Tuesday morning for me. And now you're staying all night till the next morning because you're working for yourself. Now we just, each worked a 24 hour tour and we only came in once instead of twice. And now you're off for a couple of days. And, and that's the basic schedule. You know, there's other variances, but that's it. So I got off of work. I worked Sunday, uh, the 9th into the 10th. So I got off work Monday morning, September 10th. And I cannot for the life of me, remember what I did that day. I just, on September 10th, you know, it's, uh, hard to remember life before 9-11. Uh, I know I was, I was, I, I, I know I got home very late on the night of September 10th. Uh, I, I can't remember where, where I was. I, I might've been out in New Jersey and I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And uh, I was actually sleeping the morning of 9-11. And uh, I, one of my friends called me up maybe about 9-15 in the morning, woke me up. I didn't even know what was going on. And they said, you know, I just want to make sure that you're okay. I, you know, we see what's, I said, what's going on? I turned on the TV. I was like, holy shit. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I get dressed. I jump in my car. I drive down to my firehouse, which is in the downtown Brooklyn. And uh, they're gone. And this is where I was educated to so many people, uh, so many firefighters uh, that, that perished that day. The amount of firefighters was because the sh- the shifts were, were were changing at that particular time. Correct. Yeah, you had guys who were getting off work, who who worked the night before. They worked you know, their tour ended at nine a.m. So you had those guys who were just about wrapping up their tour. Then you who had the guys who were coming in, coming in for a day tour on the morning of nine eleven. So you had 
you know, more than, you, you know, double than the amount of guys yeah. who were dead. Because the first plane hit the, hit the tower at 8.46 a.m. So it was right, right in between ships. And then I think the second plane hit it at uh, 8.59 or 9 o'clock. So when the first uh, tower got hit, uh, both companies went because we're off our houses. We're like two blocks from the Brooklyn Bridge. So we drive over the bridge. We're into lower Manhattan in minutes. We, you know, we'll get, we'll get to, to jobs in lower Manhattan quicker than some companies who are located in Manhattan because they have to deal with traffic that we don't have. The famous photo that was in the paper, right? That was the, uh, your engine company, right? That was your, I know this is a podcast, but you'll be able to see this. This is, this is the cover of the daily news. Uh, what, what date is this? This is October 5th, 2001. Uh, can you, can you see that? Yeah. All right. I'm going to show you a different picture. This is the actual real photo. Okay. You'll see the tower is burning. And this is the Brooklyn Bridge. And right here, that's ladder 118. That's, over that's Pete. That's Pete's, Pete wow. Davidson's dad's on that, that truck, right? Guys in that truck, and they all died on 9/11. Yeah. Now, this photo was taken by a. Uh, uh, it was a young man at the time. I think his name was Aaron McClam. He was he was just on the roof of a building in Brooklyn, and he was just snapping photos. And he, and uh, you know, just to jump quick to this story, he about uh, several weeks after 9/11, he comes to our firehouse with this picture, and he goes, uh, "I think this is your fire truck in this picture." So we had to get a magnifying glass out to verify it was ours because we have a special toolbox on the outside of the fire truck that, you know, that's, so we knew it was ladder 118 and that's how the, that story ended up being in a newspaper. And that's the, you know, that is. Was the actual truck ever recovered? Yes, it was, it was damaged, but uh, not as bad as uh, other rigs were, were, were damaged. Right. Um, I know you don't uh, subscribe to any of the uh, conspiracy theorists and all the stories out there, and um, but uh, would you just mind walking us uh, so you get out of bed? All right. So that morning, I get to my, I get to my firehouse, and it's probably I don't know. Uh, I think the first tower came down as I was driving to the firehouse. I grabbed my gear, and at that time, people already walking over the Brooklyn Bridge out of Manhattan into Brooklyn. And like I said, we're so close. In Manhattan, that people who were walking over the bridge ended up at our firehouse. So uh, while I was there, you know, just, uh, I was trying to help a few people. Just you know, uh, go wash your face in the sink. We had some medical supplies. No one was seriously injured, but most people had eye irritation and trouble breathing. So a friend of mine happened to be there. I said, "Listen, you gotta do me a favor, drive me into Manhattan." So I had all my gear with me. Jumped in his car. The cops let us go over the bridge. Drove over the Brooklyn Bridge. I got out of the car on the Manhattan side of the bridge. You know, he turned around and went back to Brooklyn. And uh, the World Trade Center is only about four or five blocks from the Brooklyn Bridge once you get over the bridge. So I just made a beeline for the towers. And just the way it worked out, the first guy I bumped into was a guy from my firehouse, a guy, Richie Murray. He was a, he was a senior guy in our house. And uh, I, I spot him, we lock eyes, he comes up to me, he goes, the whole truck is gone. And I'm like, what do you mean the whole truck is gone? He goes, you know, he had a radio with him. He goes, I've been calling them on the radio the last hour. They're not responding. He goes, I'm telling you they're gone. And I said, what about the engine? He goes, no, the engine's okay. 
you know, I got a story for the engine also, if you want to hear that. Yes. So, uh, you know, I was afraid to ask, I want, you know, who was working. It almost didn't matter who was working because out of the 50 guys who work on our firehouse, we're all best friends. You know, we knew them all. We knew their wives, watched their kids grow up. We're, you know, we're brotherhood. We're brotherhood for a reason. It's not just a saying. It's a, it's a way of life. So, uh, I, you know, it was you know, when I heard who was working. At first, we weren't 100 percent sure because, as we said before, it was between shifts. You don't know who was getting on, who was getting off. So we weren't 100 percent sure exactly who was working. But we just knew it was going to be bad. Now, here we go. Now we're on the pile. And the first few days looking for survivors you know we're, we're holding out hope i mean you, you see the devastation and destruction you think you're in a, a science fiction movie it's to this day it's you know when you look at pictures it's like it's unfathomable that actually happened but we're in there we're digging wherever we can dig and looking for voids and valleys and uh, underneath the world trade center there's like a small city the subways yeah. are in levels of restaurants and shopping so we're thinking hey maybe anybody who didn't get out Somehow made it underground, you know, and uh, days and days of searching and <clears throat> we never found anybody alive. You know, I mean, I, I know at the very beginning, like that first day, there was some firemen trapped in a stairwell with the woman that they had rescued. Mm -hmm. That was an amazing story. Uh, th the whole building collapsed except for the stairwell these guys are in and uh, they survived. But very, very few people survived the actual collapse. Very few stories like that. Yeah, not many. You know, a lot of nonsense stories oh this this guy rode down 80 flight you know boom 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 he rode the collapse down he landed in the street none of that was true we didn't find anybody alive you know after those first couple hours and and but but we had hope but it was after a few days that we realized that you know we weren't going to find anybody and the, the really heartbreaking thing is um, i don't know if you remember us from being at the fire academy we wear something called a pass alarm it's yes. an alarm to our belts right and when you go to a fire, when you turn on your air, it automatically turns this alarm on. So you, so it's done automatically. And now what that alarm is, if you're standing still for any amount of time, that alarm will start beeping. You know, so if you're, you know, you got your mask on, but you're not actually in the building yet and you're standing outside waiting to go in, all of a sudden a minute later you'll hear beep, beep, and you have to go like this to shut the alarm. Yeah, you have, they, you have to wiggle. You have to wiggle. Yeah. The reason for that is, if you're in a fire and God forbid something happens to you, you get knocked unconscious or you get stuck and now you can't move. After a minute, that alarm's going to go off and that's going to let other guys know, hey, this guy's in trouble and you'll follow the sound and you'll be able to locate him. Now, the morning of 9-11 <clears throat> and all that, that, you know, for the first couple hours of that afternoon, all you, it's dead silence. You know, we're all searching as hundreds of hundreds of first responders all over the place searching, but it's dead silence. And all you can hear is that beep, beep, beep of pass alarms buried somewhere in the rubble. And you know what that sound is, but there's nothing you can do about it. And it's like, it was like a, a heartbreaking thing to hear that, you know, that, you know, is that guy dead or alive? You know, is he Five feet below ground is he two stories is you know and all you can hear is beep 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 and you can hear him all over the place and eventually all the batteries died out and it stopped but it was you know that was one of the most heartbreaking things that that we went through you know to to hear that and, and be not be able to do a thing about it it was it was tough i, I can't even uh, imagine I... So now it's 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 days and weeks and we were you know it's for the first 
I don't know, God, weeks and months. Most guys, <clears throat> I can't speak for everyone, but you know, off firehouse, you were either at ground zero or you're in the firehouse. It was one or the other. There was, you know, there was no going home. I, I didn't make it home. I think two weeks before I actually made it back to my house for, for like half a day, just to, you know, get some fresh clothes, get a rest, you know, screw my head on a little bit. But uh, it was nonstop back and forth. You had the pile, you at the firehouse. I mean, we weren't even working. We had no rigs at the beginning because our rigs got damaged. We had firehouses uh, from Philadelphia, Baltimore, Jersey, working in our firehouse, covering for us. You know, uh, there, were, there, were, there were days we were actually working with no fire truck. And there, there was a fire around the corner from our firehouse. And we're running up the block with hoses in our hands and carrying a ladder. You know, it looked like a small in the 1800s like what are you guys doing but this is what went on the days and weeks after 9-11 because it was just complete chaos but you guys uh got a tremendous amount of support by uh other uh fire departments from other cities and um yeah dominic we had help from you know everyone wanted to help you know every it was you know uh um you know, people in the neighborhood constantly come by with food, monetary donations, volunteering to do whatever they can. Uh, our neighborhood in downtown Brooklyn at the time was like the headquarters for the Jehovah Witnesses. They, they owned buildings all in downtown Brooklyn. It was like their main headquarters. And they came to our firehouse with truckloads of tools to, to steal, you know, to, to try to cut steel, you know, whatever they had. It was, it was amazing. And, you know, they didn't get any of it back. Uh, you know, it all got lost down at ground zero, but these were the, uh, you know, the community in general, this happened all over the city where people couldn't do enough to help us. You know, I mean, people wanted to get into ground zero to help out, you know, obviously you, you couldn't, but you had, you know, you had nurses volunteering, they had tri triage stations set, set all over the place because you constantly having eye irritations from all the smoke and the dust and, you know, helping you wash out your eyes, whatever you needed. You had people, Standing on the streets all around Ground Zero, you know, you know, I'd spend 15 hours down in that pit and I'd come out onto the street, walking up to the subway, you know, and they see, people see a group of firemen, a group of cops, and they start applauding and cheering. And, you know, that alone, it's, it, it's uh, you know, it uh, like gave you the will to go on, you know what I'm saying? It, it, you know, it, it was... It charged it, your battery, so to speak, huh? And that was those people, that was their, you know, way of helping and... and it helped and it was uh you know it, it it was like the worst of humanity followed by the best of humanity well said that's exactly what it was but uh to get back to let me wrap up the 9-11 stuff um mo uh, we lost eight guys total in my firehouse the six guys on the on ladder 118 and uh <clears throat> marty egan was our lieutenant and he had just got promoted to captain couple of weeks before 9-11 he was working at headquarters and uh the morning of 9-11 you know just like every other fireman he, he 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 jumped in the car with other guys who were working at headquarters and he went down he went down to ground zero <clears throat> he got killed and his body was recovered uh fairly quick we had his funeral uh i think a week later scotty davidson's body was recovered a couple of weeks after that and then um nothing for as far as recovering guys from our firehouse, I think it wasn't until December, Christmas time. It might have been right after Christmas. I think it was, I think it was, matter of fact, might have been in New Year's Eve or maybe a week before. We got a call. It's, it's crazy how all these stories are going to interconnect. 
told you that Marty Egan passed away on 9-11. He was our lieutenant. His brother, Mark Egan, was then, a, uh, after 9-11, he was a lieutenant and was assigned to work down at Ground Zero. He calls our firehouse one morning, I, don't know, I guess maybe November, December, whatever it was, and he said, hey, uh, we just found the remains of Vernon Cherry. He was another guy from our firehouse. He was on the fire truck. He passed away. He called up because he knew from 118 and he was, you know, the connection with his brother. So he called us up and we were like, don't do anything. We're coming down there. We want to carry him out. Very important for us to carry our own guys out of that pit. So they didn't, they left, you know, they left, they left Vernon where he was. Uh, I wasn't working. I was off work, but I was there. So we jumped on the fire trucks, both companies right over the bridge. We go down to the world trade center and we get met by a chief who I'm, whose name I will not mention. He was running the site at the time and he sees all these guys, he knew right away when he saw the companies, he's like, what the hell are these two Brooklyn companies doing down here at the pit? He goes up to our captain. He starts screaming at him. He goes, what the hell are you guys doing here? And the captain said, well, we got a call that we recovered one of the guys. Hey, you, you're working in Brooklyn. You can't just come here. You know, Bob. So our captain was like, listen, guys, go do what you got to do. So he stood there arguing with the chief. And we got to go into the pit and we recovered Bernie's, Bernie's body. And we got to lay a, you know, drape him in a flag and we got to carry his body out. And, get to bring him back home to his family and, and that means the world to us that we were able to do that so props to uh billy stark who was yeah. our cap taking the heat for that and he got called down to headquarters and uh after that whole incident they they changed the rules and they allowed companies to come down and when you know when bodies of their guys from their firehouse were recovered they let those companies come down they realized that they had made a mistake at least they rectified that it only seems right john yeah, I mean, right. Uh, uh, like I said, uh, there was no rule book for this. So no. uh, they went as they went along, and which I guess they realized, you know what, that was a mistake. Let these guys come carry their brothers out. So we got Vernon out, and then I think it was New Year's Eve. We recovered three. We covered Joey Agnello uh, <clears throat> and Pete Vega. I think it was uh, New Year's Day, actually, because New Year's Eve, I spent New Year's Eve you know, uh, it sounds stupid, but I spent actually midnight of a New Year's Eve in 2001 in the pit. Just felt like I wanted to be there with those guys. I didn't want them to be down there alone because came, you know, even though there's a lot of people working on New Year's Eve, it was pretty empty down there. You know, as you got closer to midnight, everybody, you know, people had lives they had to get to. But I, I stayed there for midnight. But then the next morning we recovered Joey Agnello and then we recovered Pete Vega. <clears throat> and then when we recovered um, Bobby Regan, he was our lieutenant. And uh, I, I found Bobby Regan, and he was wearing, still wearing his necklace. He had a, uh, it might have been a St. Christopher necklace. I'm not sure. So I took the necklace off him, and I was going to keep it. So his wife got it back, but I thought they might need it to identify him. And I didn't want someone saying, hey, this guy just stole some guy's necklace. You know, who knows? So I took it, and I put it in his shirt pocket, and uh, his wife got the necklace back the next day. And I had a private conversation with her. She was extremely grateful. You know, it, it meant a lot to these families that yes, got, they got to bury their loved ones because we have two guys, Leon Smith and Bobby Wallace, still never recovered. So we got six out of eight. And I think out of the, you know, 2,900 plus people died at the World Trade Center, 1500 were identified as I don't know exactly but there's a lot of people who remains were never covered and I think it was more just from maybe the you woe when the towers fell and if 
you know, people might have got pulverized or just yeah. over the course of weeks and months, those fires were burning, you know, you turned to ash. Uh, so it was just, you know, like I said, we got six out of eight. And um, it was, you know, it still haunts us that, that, you know, there's two families who have no cemetery to visit. You know what I'm saying? Like they still don't have that closure. You know, as horrible as 9-11 was 20 years later, families will just never, you know, they never get I that know, full closure um, that they need. Besides the uh, the buildings going down and a, a lot of casualties happening that way, there were also a lot of casualties because cause, cause, cause of the jumpers, right? Yeah, that's that'll bring me back to my story about our engine. <clears throat> Danny Sir was the first firefighter killed on 9-11. And the reason we know this is because uh, his company and our engine company were teamed up and heading towards one of the towers to go into the towers. And a jumper, unfortunately, landed on Danny Sir, and it probably killed him instantly. So in that time that it took those two companies, which is, you know, uh, 10, 11 guys, to pick Danny up, get him into an ambulance, and take him to a hospital, in that short time frame, that tower that they were going into fell. So, uh, you know, Danny Sir getting killed saved the lives other guys because they all would have died if they made it into that building so that's how we knew that our that our engine company was safe on 9-11 because of what happened to danny star and it's just one of you know hundreds of stories that you know people don't know there's a lot of stories that i don't know that happened on 9-11 it's just you know it's like one incredible story after the next I mean, the, the the fire department, they set up their headquarters in the building. Well, I can tell you, you know, it's it's easy after 9-11. Of course. To this day, to everybody, to be a Monday morning quarterback. But I can tell you, on the morning of 9-11, there wasn't a person in the world who thought those buildings were going to come down. That's why it was important for me to have you on here. The reason I can say that is because in the New York City Fire Department, you have... Uh, some of the, the best of the best. And you had chiefs who were like collapse experts, building construction experts, guys who went to Oklahoma City when it was bombed, you know, guys who went all around the world when they were, you know, uh, you know, building collapses, whatever, you know, any major fires and taught people, you know, how to do things, how to survive these events, how to build buildings, whatever it is. Now, all these guys, the best of the best, set up a command post in the lobby of one of the World Trade Center towers. And so if those guys thought that there was any chance at all, those buildings were coming down, they would not have set up the command post in the lobby of the building. And all those guys died because the buildings collapsed while they were in the lobby. You know, the command post is where the chiefs are trying to coordinate everything, you know, you know, trying to keep track of where everybody is, and, you know. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> so those, no one thought those buildings were coming down. Okay, that's I'm, I'm sorry they're not. But at the same token, we all knew those fires were never going out. You can't put out a fire 70, 80 store, stories up in the air when there was no sprinkler systems in the building anymore because they were all destroyed. You know, so, so the sprinklers aren't working. The standpipe system, which is a, a group of pipes that go from, you know, from the ground floor all the way up to the roof and they're connected to the to the water main and, and uh 
fire truck could hook up to that water main and fill that pipe with water. And now you can just take a hose up to the 70th floor and hook up to that yeah. pipe in the staircase. And then you got water. Those, those are all destroyed. So there was no way to get water up to the 70th, 80th floor. Those fires were just going to have to eventually burn themselves out. There was, you, you weren't putting those fires out. <clears throat> so, like I said, no one thought those buildings were coming down. And now if, if you want to discuss, you know, conspiracy theories, uh, you know, um, I'm well-versed in that too, because I've had 20 years of discussions about the conspiracy theories. I watched a lot of documentaries. I've read a lot of books about it. And um, I, I say the same thing about every conspiracy theory that to me, I, I'm very open-minded. I'll listen to anybody that has something to say. I, I, you know, I don't disbelieve anything. You know, you want to talk about being abducted by aliens? I'll listen to it. You know what I'm saying? I'm, you know, I believe in God. I mean, but I can't prove that he exists. So if you want to talk about conspiracy theories, I'm, I'm listening. But the thing with conspiracy theories is that no conspiracy theorist ever offers a secondary solution. You know, they'll just say, there's no way those planes took those towers down. Okay, you tell me what happened. Well, it's just impossible that the planes took those towers. Well, didn't you tell me what happened? They don't have, they, they just offer opinions, whereas I'll counter with facts, you know, um, want to discuss building seven. No, I, I actually want to stay away from that. And, and, uh, cause I, I, we, we, we've had these conversations. I, I mean, I, I, I don't really, I don't subscribe to any, I just, I thought that the impact, of the plane did so much damage to that structure. And from what I understand is that the, the world trade was more or less hollow in the middle. They wanted wide open floor space. You know, they don't want walls. They wanted big, wide open areas. So the way those buildings were constructed, you had steel girders wrapped around the complete outside of the buildings very long steel beams going from point A to point B and then all wide open underneath. So you didn't have support. And the, the only thing in the middle of the building right. was That's the elevator right. banks right in the middle. But also, now that beam's going a very long distance and it's only supported at each end. So um, when those planes hit where they hit, first it would it obviously knocks some beams off the girders, off their supports. And then it started fires. All that jet fuel poured down to the lower floors and it ignited a lot of fires. And what was burning was office furniture, you know, uh, desks, rugs, whatever it was. That every, everything was burning. And a lot of people argue that it, it didn't burn hot enough to melt steel. And they're right, because I think you need to be need about 3000 degrees to start melting steel. You know, don't hold me to these numbers, but something like that. And I think as hot as it got in there was maybe close to 2000 degrees, but the steel didn't have to melt. What happens to steel when it gets hot, it needs to expand. It's called thermal expansion. When it gets hot enough, it needs to expand. Now, when it's attached on this end and this end, there's no way for it to expand. So that's what, ha what happens next is it starts to bend because it has to expand somewhere. And, it's, and then now the steel's, a steel beam will start twisting. And when it twists enough, eventually all the nuts and bolts that are holding it to one end are going to snap. And that's what happened between the planes causing the initial damage and then the fires heating up the steel and the 
certain steel bending, all of a sudden, boom, a, right. one floor is going to collapse on top of another floor. And now that floor can't hold the weight of two floors and it collapses onto the next floor. And now all of a sudden it's boom, 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 pancake collapse straight down on the ground. And that's how those towers came down. And, you know, uh, I, I've listened to, so many, you know, conspiracy theories about a controlled demolition because did it look like it yes that that well it depends on what angle too if you're looking at it generally speaking and people have said oh we heard explosions and there's video of if you watch one of the collapses in slow motion you can see like on the lower floors that hadn't collapsed yet you'll see smoke uh shooting out of windows and people would say oh you see that that's that's an explosion on a lower floor collapse air pockets yeah you know, I did, I did a, like I said, did a lot of reading, did a, did a lot of research because controlled demolition seems to be like the number one conspiracy theory for, for this whole 9-11 thing. What, what, um, what they use in buildings is called thermite, I think. You have to attach it to the steel in order to blow it up to, to make a building collapse. So now think about it. You're, you know, you were in World Trade Center, 210 story buildings packed with people 24 hours a day. Where in these weeks or months before 9-11 are these guys strolling and, and, and ripping down a wall and ripping down fire insulation and getting access to... Why is that guy rolling a cable <laughs> down the hallway? Nothing to see here. What's he doing here? It was, you know, it's, it, it, you know, you can think controlled demolition, but if you actually sit back and think about everything that oh, has yeah, I agree. It's impossible. You know? And they talked about... Building seven that collapsed later in the afternoon. Building seven was about a block away from the World Trade Center. It was about a 50-story building. Same type of construction as the World Trade Center buildings. And it collapsed at 5.30 in the afternoon because when the World Trade Center got hit, uh, a lot of, uh, I don't know if it was buildings or plane parts, crashed into part of building seven. But you couldn't see it from certain angles. Three sides of the building looked fine. Fourth side, you could see where the damage was. So why? in building seven too and it burned all day long and we knew no one was in building seven so we didn't waste any resources putting anybody in harm's way going into building seven because there was no one there to save so we just let it burn and we knew eventually it was going to probably collapse so everyone stayed away for it that's why nobody nobody got killed when building seven came down because we knew to stay away from it and people talk about well building seven because i think the ca cia had offices in there the fbi had offices People want to come up with this other conspiracy that that's why they destroyed building to, to destroy evidence. And I, my, uh, my counter argument is always the same. I said, if there's any evidence from the CIA or the FBI about any 9-11 shenanigans, anything going on in the Middle East or whatever, I said, what kind of evidence could there be? Wouldn't it be on like on a computer disk or something? You have to knock down a 50 story building to destroy a computer disk. I mean, just, you know, take the computer. and It's absurd. Right. It's, it's absurd. That's what I'm saying. Like, you know, you, you really got to, Wrap your mind around the whole thing if you're going to offer, you know, alternate versions of reality. But, but, but I think because it was such a huge event and, you know, people just don't believe that you're telling me that, you know, a, a bunch of guys came over from the Middle East, undetected in this country, learned how to fly planes in one year and then hijacked planes with box cutters and then crash them into the World Trade Center and those towers collapse. You know, yes, that's what happened. But I think it was such a big event that for some people, that's it's it's too simple. It needs to be a big, huge government cover-up, which I'll never understand why people...
Well, once once these conspiracy theories came out about nine uh, eleven, then you started hearing some about Pearl Harbor, the same thing. Well, you know, uh, political uh, machine, just uh, just because of of what was going on uh, to incite war, and war brings money and economics. And I mean, I don't really, I'm I'm, I'm not really uh, that versed in it, but. Um, then you just started hearing all these other conspiracy theories uh, regarding Pearl Harbor and stuff like Even that. Things came out about, you know, the reason the government knocked the towers down because we wanted to go to war in the middle. I'm like, really? I said, you know, uh, weapons of mass destruction got, you know, got us into war in the Middle East. I said the government didn't need to knock down buildings to get us into war. Yeah, never found those either. Their <laughs> own excuse to, to go invade Iraq if they wanted to. They didn't need to knock down buildings. So Right. Well, let's, uh, I want to move off of this a little bit. And I know you were a cop for six years before you were a fireman. Why, why, what made you want to be a fireman? I can say that I, I didn't grow up. Oh, I want to be a cop when I grow up. I want to be a fireman grow up. You know, I want to be a baseball player when I grow up, you know. Me too. Well, listen, we, uh, you know, we shot some hoops together. We, we threw the football around one day. Yeah. I think we can agree that we're both pretty athletic. Yeah, but you know, uh, you know, I grew up, um, you know, middle class Brooklyn neighborhood. You know, my father was a, a worked for the New York City Transit Authority, city worker. Um, you know, a typical Brooklyn upbringing. You know, we I had two older brothers and a sister. You know, with uh, great parents raised us right. Uh, you know, we weren't rich by any means, but we didn't want for anything, and. Um, you know, I, I was a typical kid hanging out, you know, I went through high school. I got out of high school. I didn't know what I, I had, still didn't know what I want to do with my life. You know, I, was, I went to, I went to college for one day. Okay. And <laughs> I didn't know what I was majoring. I didn't know nothing. I went into college one day. I said, I can't do this anymore. And, and, and then uh, I was 18 years old. I got a job in a sporting goods store for two years. And I didn't think this. And then I got called for the police department and uh, several of my friends also became cops. So I became a cop. And, um, I got on in 1985, which was when crack hit New York City. Wow. You in the Rockaways, correct? No, no. I was I was in uh, northern Brooklyn. I was in all the bad neighborhoods of Brooklyn. Oh, wow. In Bushwick, Bed-Stuy. Yeah. Red Hook. And back in 1985, when crack hit New York City, crime exploded. Murders exploded. What precinct? I was in the 8-4, the 8-8. I was in a few different precincts. I hopped around. It was you. It was nonstop action. You know, you worked call after call after call. It was it was it was insane. But I I loved it. Worked with a great group of friends. You know, uh, I'm still to this day still friends with a lot of guys I worked with when I was a cop. I, but when you're a cop, you also interact with the fire department. You know, you'll go to car accidents together. You'll show up at a fire. And I had friends who were firemen. I had friends who became firemen. Every fireman I ever met in my life, you said it earlier, they all tell you the same thing. It's the greatest job in the world. That's all I kept, the greatest job in the world. And I was like, as much as I love being a cop, I had taken the test to become a fireman too. So when they called me for the fire department, I didn't, at first I didn't know what to do. But what you're allowed to do, I didn't have to quit the police department. You take a year's leave of absence because you're just going from one city job to the next. So I had nothing to lose. So I took a year's leave of absence from the police department and I went to the fire department. 
all my seniority came with me. My pay stayed the same. So it really wasn't giving anything up. I was taking a shot. And uh, it was an adjustment at first. I loved the fire academy. You know, I had a great time. Once I got to my firehouse, it was a little bit of an adjustment because I spent a lot of downtime in, in the fire department. You know, a lot of time you just sit around the firehouse, you know, goofing off, doing whatever, maybe doing a little training. But you're not, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not going on calls all day long. So I had a hard time adjusting to the days where you were sitting around, you weren't doing much. I was a new guy and I had no friends. I was in the police department for a while. But once you catch your first fire and you start making friends, all of a sudden it just becomes second nature. And then I never look back and uh, no regrets as far as my career goes. Well, John, you're in Dom's hot seat now. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. What's one of your biggest pet peeves? My biggest pet peeve, I think, is people who think that the rules don't apply to them. You know, the guy who double parks because he don't have time to go look for a spot, you know, the guy who cuts the line, the guy who's talking on his phone when he shouldn't be talking on his phone. You know, people who, you know, and I'm not, you know, I don't wear a mask when I'm, you know, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like the rules don't apply to me. I, right. I, you know, I'm sitting in traffic and here's some idiot flying by me in the service lane, you know, because he don't want to wait in traffic, you know, uh, uh, you know, that, things like that, you know, drive me crazy. You know, it's. You know, rude, rude, rude people who think the rules don't apply to them. Right. You're up on a karaoke stage. What song are you singing? Oh, that one's easy. I'm singing <laughs> Summer by Frank Sinatra. Summer Wind. There you go. <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> I grew up, I don't know where you guys are from, but I grew Francis up. Francis Albert Sinatra. <laughs> I grew up listening to WNEWAM. In the morning, I think uh, Jonathan Schwartz and, uh, you know, and that's what I heard every morning when I woke up to go to school. I grew up with Sinatra. It was my parents' favorite song. Uh, my father had passed away before I got married, and that's the song I danced to with my mother. And so that song is a special place in my heart. So if I'm going up on carry. I, compl- I, I, I understand that. Uh, if you could go back in time and give yourself a piece of advice, what's that piece of advice and how old are you? I'd say I'm 18 years old and I just got out of high school and I tell myself, go away to college, go somewhere, go, go out to San Diego, go to college somewhere. Well, not that I don't regret it. I had to do it over again. I think I would have went away to college. I just think that it, it, it's a, a great learning experience, not only for what you're learning in school, but the fact that now you're 18, 19, 20 years old and you're out, living on your own you're growing up quicker yeah, I mean, yeah it's one it's one it's one of my regrets as well something I, I i would i would do over i can relate to that um has there ever been a movie that made you cry <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll, big I'll, tough I'll, guy like you huh <laughs> <laughs> baby. Uh, i'll tell you the first that i remember from being a young age you want to know what made me cry what movie yeah. yes oh. Okay. Piccolo, yeah. Piccolo with and uh, Billy D. Williams, right? Yes. Yes. Right. I mean, that's. I mean, that movie was in the '70s, so I was, you know, I was, well, I don't know, ten years old when that movie came out. But I still remember that Brian song that that movie got to me. Everything gets to me. Listen, I, during the pandemic, my daughter got us hooked on Grey's Anatomy, so I watched 17 seasons of Grey's Anatomy. Where God, I think my eyes teared up every other, every other episode. <laughs> 
Could be worse. You could have been watching Quincy. <laughs> See if our audience knows that. I've watched all of Quincy. Oh, I, 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 I revisited Quincy. And I'll bet that the reason you watch Quincy is because you were a Jack, Jack Klugman fan. from the Huge. Office. Huge Klugman fan. <laughs> Odd couple and honeymooners. I oh. could I could spend my day having conversations quoting those two shows and what I say would actually fit into conversations. Sam, I, I think it's gonorrhea. Um, <laughs> uh, I think that's an Artie Lang line actually. Uh, what are you watching today? Oh well, I, well besides uh, Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> You know what I watch on TV? I watch the same things over and over. I flip through the channels and I'll see, a, you know, oh, A Few Good Men is on. I've, I've only seen that a hundred times. Let me watch that again. Shawshank Redemption. I, like, uh, you know, shows that, that, you know, I'm a big Magnum P.I. fan. I know you did a couple episodes of the new Magnum P.I. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, were you a fan of the old Magnum P.I.? Of course. Now, my favorite episode of TV ever was the episode of Magnum. I don't know if you remember when uh, it was a two-part episode. They could have made a movie about it. Was the, it. the character that I play, Nuzo. Nuzo. In yeah. the original... Uh, the Paradise, I think it's called. Something like that. Uh, Return to Paradise. You see the Sunrise is the name see of the See the episode. Sunrise, that's right. Yeah, something like that. Uh, the guy who played Ivan, was it Lee Swenson? Is that my... Yeah. My tall, blonde guy? Wait, wait. The bad guy. Ivan, Ivan was the bad guy. And what happened in the original Magnum, he had caught... It was Magnum, TC, Rick, and Nuzo. He had them captive in Duck Way in Vietnam for right. like <laughs> during that time. He somehow was able to hypnotize TC, you know, as a sleeper soldier, kind of like a Manchurian candidate type of thing, to right. use it. Eight, and then he shows up on the, uh, on the islands, at, you know, present time in the nineties or whenever Magnum was, and he he would slip TC Nuzo was slipping TC bubble gum. And it was laced with whatever it was that triggered TC and they wanted him to kill somebody. But anyway, in that whole thing, uh, Mac, uh, Magnum's best friend, this guy, Mac, got killed. They blew up Magnum's Ferrari and Mac was in it. And the last thing Mac said to Magnum before the car blew up, it was like in the, it was early in the morning. He goes, come on, Magnum, let's go see the sunrise. And the car blew up and Mac got killed. So at the very, very end of that two-parter, Magnum's got Ivan in the forest and he's got a gun. And he's going to kill him like in cold blood. And Ivan goes, you won't kill me. It's not in you. You know, if I was armed, maybe, but you know, not like this. And Ivan walks away and Magnum goes, Ivan, did you see the sunrise this morning? And Ivan turns around and goes, yes. And the last thing you see is Magnum pulling the trigger and you see the muzzle flash and he killed him. Blood. Now, when did that ever happen? No. Yeah. Main character, the TV show, kills somebody. I thought that was the greatest episode of TV. Episode well, you know, um, the reboot, uh, that Peter Linkoff uh, started. Uh, the pilot of the, of the new show was that storyline. Was the the Nuzo and and the war, but then you know they they made they it, it was the Afghans Afghans war as opposed to Vietnam and whatnot. Um, but I think it was one of his favorite. Um, episodes as well and and love he peter always loved going back like to the certain characters who represented like mythology of, of the show and that's what Nuzo was of the uh of not so much the case of the week but kind of 
connecting the case of the week to something from the past. And I right. think I think that's what made the the, the new sh- the new the new show work as well was going back to the old show because I remember watching that that episode and I remember watching Nuzo in 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 the car and I think they pick him up at the airport or something like that and he's in the car and then he's just staring out the space and he takes his tie and he starts doing like a bandana <laughs> yeah. right you remember that and. Um, so that was, uh, that's another watch another show if I'm flipping through the channels up oh, Magnum's on gotta watch. yeah it was a kickoff it was the kickoff for the reboot and uh it's funny you it's funny you bring that up that's why like uh I watch NCIS I'm a big fan of that show and that's another show that's great at going back for something you know in season 17 they'll flash back to something in season two yeah. and all of a sudden it makes sense you know like it, i don't know who these who these people are who create these shows the things that they come up with where where they're it's able a team. to go back and it's a team of writers a team of people you know they, they that's what they do every day no i mean i got a little taste of it you know just you know being on and doing that movie thing but i, I like that whole movie thing for me what i know what i enjoy i love watching people who are masters of their craft do their job I love like talking to you about acting. I like with and I Judd, hated like, it. Uh, yeah, well, you had to put up. Yeah, no, I, I, I was so, I was so much more fascinated about like what you did and what you brought to the table. But, uh, but generally speaking, like I would talk to Judd and about a scene in a movie, and he'd explain to me what he's trying to get out of this scene. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Like Bob Ellswick, the cinematographer. Yes. Uh, that guy's genius, right? Just listen to him, <clears throat> the way he sets up the camera and the lighting and, and what it, uh, uh, everything, you know, the, the guy who ran the props department, I spent a lot of time with him listening. I just found everyone, like I said, they were all masters at what they do. I mean, listen, I'll watch a guy doing cement work, and, you know, and uh, watch him do that job. Like, I, I just find it amazing when people are so good at their job. I, I just love watching them do it. And that's what that movie was to me. It was just groups of people who were just masters at their craft. And I just got to experience it. And I thought it was great. And I, I wanted to bring up one funny thing because I've been watching your podcast. You're crushing it. I haven't seen the Henry Winkler one yet, but I've watched the other ones. And <clears throat> when you interviewed Sherry Thomas, right? Was that her name? Yes. He mentioned something about sides and I had a, a, a similar different experience because we were, we were on the set and someone came up to me and said, Hey, do you want to go over your sides? And I was like, yeah, okay. So, so I go like this, so I turned this. I thought you were trying to figure out which, you know, which side I look better on. He goes, Michael, I had no idea what side was. Shadow one, I had no idea. So I embarrassed myself to find out what sides meant. So when you were having that conversation with her, I, that that cracked me up. I saw good. I'm not the only. You always, one. you know, you always learning. You know, yeah. Um, yeah ears open and your mouth shut. You learn. Well, I, 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 I think you're a hero. Um, I, I, I know a lot of people out there. Uh, thank you. Who's your hero? Well. I would say my parents are my hero. I mean, uh, just, you know, my father fought in World War II, uh, you know, came home, bought a house with the GI Bill. You know, they, 
They raised the family. Uh, I mean, they had, my father had his in-laws living with us with four other kids, you know, before I was born when he, you know, it was 15 people living in his house and, uh, you know, the, the way they raised us four kids, we all got to go to Catholic school, you know, like I said, we didn't have money, but we never wanted for anything. And they raised, you know, my mother taught us all right from wrong. And, and uh, yeah, they're my heroes. Anything you want to plug, John? Uh, any foundation? Um, I know you work closely with some of the uh, 9-11 families and and what they're going through. People, uh, I, I, you, you had to stop being a firefighter because of... Uh, Stuff that happened to you, uh, being in the pit. Yeah, well, like uh, asthma is what eventually did me in, but also that fire. I was told you a little about earlier that at the last job I was at, I ended up bad fire. Ended up falling down a flight of stairs. Had a couple of shoulder surgeries. So between that and the asthma, I, yeah, I was done. But I I volunteer for an organization called Friends of Firefighters. It's actually started because a woman came into our firehouse about a week after 9-11. And I just happened to be there. And uh, her name is Nancy Carbone. You probably, you might've yeah. met her. I don't know if you met her. And uh, she comes up to me. She goes, listen, I, I, I live in the neighborhood. She goes, uh, I want to help you guys. She goes, what can I do for you? I, I don't have money that's going to make any difference for you. She goes, but I can get stuff done. What can I do for you? And I was like, you know, at that time, all bets were off. I mean, you know, you, you know uh, we never really let, you know, we help people. People don't help us. That was the fire department. That, that's our mentality. But at that time, we needed all the help we could get. So I said, you want to help us? I said, we need bunting for outside our firehouse. Bunting is the the black and purple cloth drapery that you'll see hung over precincts or a firehouse when somebody gets killed. So we had no bunting because there wasn't enough to go around because so many firehouses needed it. So she drove out to Long Island, found a, a volunteer firehouse with bunting. She brings it back to us. She goes, here's your bunting. What else you need? And the silliest things I asked her for, whatever it was, she got it done. And this kind of snowballed. And then she started going to other firehouses and helping them out. And she eventually started her own organization, a nonprofit, which is still going today. And it's uh, basically they help five active firefighters retired firefighters their families they help you with you know if you any mental issues you might be having anything anything you need help with they'll help you with steve buscemi is actually on the board yeah. of directors for that I that's know. how i originally met i gotta tell you about like uh steve buscemi um you know i've i've, I've met him several times over the years through the organization i'm friends with him but when i see him and i remind him who i am he remembers me so when we uh <clears throat> met for rehearsals uh, on the movie, I'll tell you one more silly story. That morning, rehearsals was at 10 a.m. in Manhattan. Now, I'm living in Staten Island. So I said, I'm going to take an express bus to the city at like 6.30 in the morning. I don't care if I'm there three hours early. I'm not being late for my rehearsal. I get on a bus at 6.30 in the morning, and an express bus goes from Staten Island through New Jersey into Manhattan. That's how it goes. Get on the Gotham Bridge, dead stop. There was an accident on the Jersey Turnpike. They closed it down. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. It's 730. It's 8 o'clock. It's 830. I'm sitting on the Gothels Bridge. I'm like, I can't believe it. It's like 9 o'clock in the morning. I'm just about to make the phone call that I'm not making this rehearsal. But then all of a sudden, traffic started moving a little bit. Come out of the, the Lincoln Tunnel at about 940. Now, the Lincoln Tunnel is like 44th and 11th, I think. And the rehearsal was on uh, a rehearsal. 27th and 6th. So we come out of the tunnel, the bus lets me jump right out of the bus, and now I'm running through the street from Manhattan. 
And I'm saying to myself as I'm running, I'm like, is anybody else in this movie doing this? I said, these guys are pulling up in front of the building and they're chauffeured limos. And here I am running. Through. I said, what the hell's going on? You know, I get in front of the building. I'm drenched in sweat, you know, because it's the summertime. I'm soaked. I get there at like two minutes to 10. I go upstairs. I go in the bathroom. I take my shirt off. I'm wiping myself down on paper towels. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? So anyway, I get into the rehearsal room and I meet all you guys. That's when I first met you officially. And I end up sitting next to Steve Buscemi. And, you know, now he knows me. Hey, John, how is Steve? And make a little small talk. And now I have no idea what I'm doing again because this is all foreign to me. I don't know what's going on here. So then, you know, we're all sitting in a semicircle. And Judd's facing us and he hands out all the papers. I'm going to do four or five scenes. And, you know, you've got two lines. You've got a line. You've got a line. I said, all right, I'm figuring it out as I go along. So very informal. But, you know, then Judd goes, okay, whenever you guys are ready, you know, he goes, action. And now I'm sitting there. And I think, like, Bill Burr starts talking. And I'm just following along. I got, like, one line at the end. And I'm hearing Bill Burr say his lines. And I'm like, what the oh, fuck you doing here? here? <laughs> <laughs> and now I get lines and I'm like, really that. And then I'm, you know, then Keith says what he's got to say, and I'm like, oh my god, what am I doing in this room? And now Steve sitting next to me. When his turn comes, as soon as he opens his mouth, he doesn't say what's written on the page, but whatever he says means the same thing. It, once he starts talking, it, it just, it just felt like it went up to this level, and I was like, I do not belong in here. You know what am I doing? But like I said, I had one or two. Lines. I was playing myself, so it was easy. I remember but those sessions. Being a, they were great. I had a ball. You know, I had a good time because Judd is so informal, and he let guys improvise, and you just made up your own stuff, and it was funny. Like, we did a scene at the Firehouse Kitchen, and, you know, they used, like, 30 seconds of it in the movie. But, you know, we we went on for five, ten minutes, and we're just screaming at None of that was written yep. down. We're screaming at each other. But I, saw, I also remember uh, those... Uh, uh, those rehearsal ses sessions, if you want to call them that, where, you know, you would bring up a topic. Hey, how's your wife doing? You, you, you know, or something like that. Or you, you get, you, did you, you always brought like this family thing into uh, everything, that, whether it be like a baseball game or something like that. But I, you, you were great in those I, sessions. I threw, I threw out, everything I could think of. They wanted to hear a lot of stories about Pete's father. And you know, I told a lot of good stories. Listen, that scene at the end of the movie, when we're all sitting at the table in the bar, you know, now to me, that's one of the best days of my life. I'm sitting at a table with you. That was Bill a great Burr. scene. That was a good day. Now that scene, I, I'm not going to say I wrote that scene, but um, I, I wrote that scene. <laughs> and... <laughs> Stories that Steve's telling. Yeah, that <laughs> No, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I got, I'd write it, and then, they, like I said, now I'll say they're saying, okay, now we know, now we got something to work with, and they boom, boom. But the actual story that Steve told about uh, Pete's dad being on the roof of the car, driving over the Brooklyn Bridge, that's a true story. All right, now it's me bringing this story, you know, to Judd, and they used it in the movie. Now, here I am, you know, Johnny Nobody. I'm sitting at a table for six hours. You know, I'm sitting next to you. And like I said, Bill, Burr, and Steve, sitting there for six hours watching Steve Buscemi tell Pete my stories about his father. It was just like a, a crazy, surreal experience, you know? I mean, I, these are the things I lived with with Pete's father. And here Steve's telling them to Pete, and it's going in a movie. It was just, to me, you know... I'm sure the movie was unbelievably personal for Pete, but it was really 
you know, it was like a cathartic experience for me too. I, I mean, I, I had a quick scene with Pete in the movie where we were painting the lines on the yeah. floor. And, you know, again, like you said, it became part of a montage. It was probably like a minute long. They used like 10 seconds of it. But right before we start filming that scene, you know, we're standing over our lines, blah, blah, blah. And right before we're filming it, I get a flashback because I'm doing that exact same thing with Pete's father in the firehouse 25 years ago. You know, painting lines, except Pete's father was painting, you know, he was painting our shoes yellow instead of painting, <laughs> a, painting the floor yellow. But, and it hits me. I'm like, well, this is I think this is absolutely insane that I'm going through this. And then I'm, now I'm thinking about Pete. I said, man, I said, this must be very hard for Pete to be in a firehouse. And, you know, even though we're not talking about his father, we're, we're talking about his father. You know what I'm saying? You know, we didn't make it a 9-11 thing because Judd didn't want it to be a movie about 9-11. Right. You know, he was as if he yeah. said if he made it 9-11. Can, uh, just a whole new can of worms. Yeah. Right. Everyone would have a sad story to tell. He wanted the he wanted the tragedy to be specific to 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 that family. So that's why we made his father die in a hotel fire in yeah. the movie. You know, it's the story. But like I said, the whole experience for me, for, you know, for knowing Pete's dad and working with him, and, and and knowing, you know, I've known Pete his whole life. You know, I, I um, Pete never really came around the firehouse because he just couldn't handle it. But I'm close with his mom, his time. sister, his yeah, grandfather. It's not, it's not an easy thing. He was, a, he, was a, he was a little kid. No, he asked me, to, hey, can you, they want to interview me. They want to talk about my dad. Can you come right. get an interview? Or, you know, whatever he, whatever he needed, I did to this day. You know, I haven't spoken to him since the movie, but, if, you know, if he calls me up tomorrow because he needs me for something, I'm there because I just think the world of him. I think he's fit. Oh, very nice. <laughs> I, you know what? I, I saw when you first started doing your podcast, I even showed my wife. I said, hey, Mindy, I said, I said, look what Dom has on his bookshelf yeah, man. back there. I'm, I'm, I, I'm glad I gave it to, you know, someone who appreciates, you know, like I knew that that would mean a lot to you. And it meant a lot to me. Uh, to to you. And I can't thank you thank enough. You. And, and I can't tell you what. I can't, it's hard for me to express in words right now how much I, I really feel about it. But uh, Anyone who doesn't know, I don't, I don't know what people are going to see here, but that is an actual piece of World Trade Center steel. And I just wanted you to have it. And uh, I don't remember what I wrote on that, but I just wanted to say that, you know, guys like you and Bill, the, the way you carried yourselves and the way you represented the New York City Fire Department, you know, it was you, you did good. And I just wanted to let you know how much not only myself, but, you know, all firemen everywhere appreciate what you guys do and how you made us look in that movie. We appreciate you. So I, I want to thank you for coming on my podcast and uh, basically telling these uh, I know what I know are hard stories for you and uh, sharing them with everyone. Thank you for blessing the podcast. I really appreciate it. Tell these stories mostly for one reason, because... After 9-11, um, one of the wives, uh, my friend Joey, had two young sons. One was four, one was two. And his, you know, once that story came out in the Daily News about our firehouse, we became well-known, you know, constantly on TV, interviews, newspapers, whatever it was. And then she said it to me one day, and, she, and I'll never forget it. She said, you know, she goes, when my sons get older, one of, one of the only things I'm going to be able to tell them about their father and what they what he did on 9 11 
is these stories that you're telling now, these interviews you're giving on TV, these interviews you're giving to the newspapers. I'll be able to share that with my kids when they get older so they'll know the true hero that their father was. So that's why I tell these stories. You know, we have an expression, never forget. And we, you know, I live that every day. Know you know, you I'll, know. I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell my 9-11 story to anybody. I'll, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it doesn't bother me when I talk about it, but I'm, I, I just, I'm proud of what these guys did. And I want, you know, 20 years later, I want people to know what they did. You know, never forget. I don't, you know, people shouldn't forget what, what happened that day. I mean, listen, there's constantly tragedies in the world. We're going through a pandemic now. I mean, uh, you know, the Hurricane Sandy we went through in New York, uh, you know, and no matter what happens, whether it's a terrorist attack or it's a hurricane, it's a pandemic, your first responders are always there. Your fine and your cops, your paramedics, your doctors, your nurses, they're there for all of it. And whatever comes down the road next, guess what? We're still going to be there. So important for people to know. They're not running away. They're running too. You know, that's what, uh, that's what I think a lot of people forget sometimes. What people are made of, and especially the, you know, the, uh, we got to give a shout out to the New York City Police Department because they've been going through hell for the past year with all these riots and protests, and they've been getting a bad rap, and and it's just not fair, and it's a, it's a, it's a, they do an unbelievably tough job, and and uh, they deserve all the credit in the world for what they do. Yes, they do. John, thank you so much. Dominic, it was my pleasure. Ah, uh, it's good seeing you. I told you, brothers forever. Brothers forever, and uh, we're going to make it down there. We're yeah. going to make it to the world trade. We'll get back to normal. I would yeah. love to spend one day with you. I told you, when I'm going there, I'm going there with you. Uh, maybe another day, so. another day on a golf course and teach me yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my friend. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. The summer wind came blowing in. From across the sea It lingered there To touch your hair And walk with me All summer long We sang a song And then we strolled That golden sand Two sweethearts Summer.